Hello, my name is Austin Habish, the founder of Think Catholic, your source for Catholic thought with both depth and devotion, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Joining me is Claire Nowak. Hello. And Dr. Alan Femister. Hello. As today we take up a talk, a topic mentioned in the podcast on your personal story, Claire, but which we didn't really treat, and that's the modern world's antagonism against women. Which I would like to kick off with these words from John Paul II's 1995 Letter to Women, which states, Women's dignity has often been unacknowledged and their prerogatives misrepresented. They have often been regulated to the margins of society and even reduced to servitude. This has prevented women from being truly themselves, and it has resulted in a spiritual impoverishment of humanity. When it comes to setting women free from every kind of exploitation and domination, the gospel contains an ever-relevant message, which goes back to the attitude of Jesus Christ himself. Transcending the established norms of his own culture, Jesus treated women with openness, respect, acceptance, and tenderness. In this way, he honored the dignity which women had always possessed, according to God's plan and in his love. And so JP2 mentions everything from misrepresentation to exploitation, but Claire, where would you point to first in this world's war against authentic femininity? I think there's the failure to recognize the dignity of women, but also the dignity of women, womanhood and everything that makes women um, specifically feminine. There's so many things about femininity that are just absolutely despised in the modern world. Um, I mean, to start off with their, so in my own personal experience, um, I'm, I'm currently like 25 weeks pregnant, praise be God. Um, and, uh, from like my second prenatal appointment, I was being asked by the doctors and the nurses about what my, uh, birth control plan would be as soon as I gave birth. Um, and the very much my kind of uh, takeaway from that is these doctors and these nurses who I'm sure all have all the best intentions at heart. They want to celebrate how beautiful it is that my husband and I are expecting a child um, and also want to make sure that this never, ever happens again. <laughs> it's, a, it's a contradiction. Contradiction really is. It absolutely is. Um, I mean, every so I, I also I work in a high school um, and I have so many teenage girls who are on the, the pill, right? And the, and the, prev- the, the fact that we call contraception the pill as if it's this, you know, it's the new snake oil. It's this miracle cure-all for every single problem that they have. And these girls tell me that they're on it for, um, for acne. They tell, it, they tell me it's for, you know, regulation of their periods. It's to help balance out their depression medication or their other, like, uh, you know, the medication that they're on to balance their hormones. Um, they take it for, you know, every possible reason you can imagine. Um, but like over and over again, it's one of the, it's one of the many symptoms where women's fertility is treated like a sickness that has to be treated. Um, the, you know, I, the, the fact that I have students who take the pill in order to stop their periods, for instance, is just insane to me. The fact that, that medicine is used to actually stop the normal healthy functioning of a woman's body and for what reason um we we have i think as a culture just associated so strongly women's fertility um 
we, we treat it like there's something going wrong with the body rather than something going right with the body. When a woman gets pregnant frequently, she's treated as though something went terribly wrong instead of something went right, right? This is what is supposed to happen, you know, when, when men and women have sex, the, the, the woman is supposed to conceive. Um, that's like the, the natural kind of goal of that act in the first place. But we treat it like it's a sickness. We treat it like something went terribly wrong. So my question, Claire, here is it is the the reluctancy to you know pregnancy or just you know the idea of having a child of being a mother is it is there some kind of shame here of of being a woman of being able to bear children or is it more about the child like a child would be an inconvenience yeah. or I don't want to bring a child into an evil world so do you yeah. do you think it's more one than another I think that so there there is a lot of talk now especially among younger people about um not wanting to bring children into this world because of x y and z um, but I think the kind of gut reaction, um, the kind of gut reaction kind of discussed at like women's fertility, uh, goes back to the age old problem of women have in so many ways been made objects, like been, been made sexual objects. And when a woman is pregnant, when, um, all of those markers of like, Hey, sex is actually about procreation. When those are brought to the surface, it kind of shatters the illusion of this kind of, you know, fertile, sexual object that is kind of there as kind of a stand-in for you know for for sexual gratification i think that that's kind of the gut reaction yeah doc i had this hunch but it might be completely wrong that uh, prior to the invention of the contraceptive pill people who didn't entirely believe or couldn't explain to themselves why one would hold that uh, it was immoral to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, could still understand that it would be irresponsible to leave a woman in a position where she was pregnant mm-hmm. if you weren't sure and hadn't committed to providing for her yeah. in the event that she became pregnant. And so there was a kind of uh, sort of sort of residual pseudo-honour that undergirt uh, the continuance of the sexual norms of Western society, yeah, um, based on the, the 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 likelihood of pregnancy in the event of fornication, um, and once that was eliminated, it completely transformed the structure of Western society, so that you didn't have people completely change their patterns of behaviour. And uh, based on the assumption that sex was recreational and yeah. that you weren't, people weren't going to get pregnant, um, and then they started to become quite angry if people did become pregnant as a result of uh, indiscriminate sexual behaviour because, because it, it undermined a completely new social paradigm yeah, which and, was being established. And it's irresponsible, right? Like it's treated as irresponsible to have a child. Um, it's also kind of interesting how uh, especially you know in in so many ways the modern world touts all of these you know um kind of very righteous sounding empowering phrases um and they and they want to they want to pat themselves on the back all the time for how how much better we are to women um how much we empower women and support women now um but even in the case of birth control um it, it's seen as a problem if the woman is fertile, but that's never, that's not, not even a question 
for the man, right? Like there isn't an equivalent. Um, the, the man isn't seen as something wrong with him for being fertile, for being able to have children. The problem and the onus is on the woman to make sure that sex can be this purely recreational thing, um, which is which doesn't seem to be in the spirit of all these empowering kind of phrases of the day. Um, but it's certainly something that I think is true. I'm thinking about the, just the contraceptive culture and this, this line, as we were talking about, is it, is it because a child is an inconvenience or bringing a child into the world that would be evil? Uh, Frank uh, Sheet has this great line. He says, a quote, that the, birth, that the birth of other children might mean riding in a less expensive car or sending the children to a less fashionable school would not justify the decision to have no more. He's meaning no more children. For that would be making the ornaments of life more valuable than life itself. And not only could no Christian see things so, and then he'll go on and, and describe that, but it it really does, it, it has our priorities backwards that we we see another child coming into the world as taking away our income or uh, our ability to travel mm-hmm. or these various ornaments yeah. when none of those things have are nearly as valuable as that soul uh, coming into the, the world. You know, it's it that that's one of the... Um arguments that I just think is so funny um when when people use the excuse of like wanting like wanting to protect the environment by not having children I think the the bigger issue is not the number of children we have who are growing up to consume natural resources but it's um it's it's not the number of people as much as it is the amount of stuff that we consume right like the average you know family in in a well-to-do country such as our own um we we live much more lavishly uh we consume a great deal more we have because we're used to having so much more there for most of human history people have gotten by with significantly less right the the issue i think is more an issue of greed than it is of scarcity um so that that argument just always kind of makes me laugh when when it's made by people who live in these lavish homes who have all this extra space um but we, yeah, that seems to that seems to be a common feature. And I mean, if you're if you're insisting on contraceptive activity because you want to enjoy sex recreationally and make use of other human beings and their emotions for your enjoyment, and you want to um, and you want to uh, own you know more cars and a larger house and all that kind of stuff by having fewer or no children. It, that's not a particularly nice thing to think about yourself. Whereas if you tell yourself that you're doing it because you're so worried about the planet mm-hmm. or overpopulation or something like that, instead of it becoming you selfishly seeking a more expensive car and a bigger house, it becomes you selflessly seeking to save the people of Bangladesh and right. otherwise yeah. be killed in terrible, terrible yeah. um, pretenses, uh, flooding. Well, and that's and that you can also see that in the language that we use now to talk about a recreational sex. I mean, especially from the perspective of the woman, like if the, if the woman is the one taking the contraception, which is often the case, right? If it's if it's a if it's a pill form, there I think there are some now versions of contraception for male, but it's overwhelmingly the woman who takes the contraception. Um, but we we don't want to think that we're using another person. We don't want to think that the relationship is primarily a relationship of use. Um, and so we, we have other ways of kind of navigating that language of talking about the sexualization of women as though it's empowering. Um, there's, you know, the, the fate, the phase is now what, like the sex positive feminism, which uses, tries to make women objects 
but because the women are choosing to be objects, then, you know, somehow this is empowering for us because now we're the ones who are deciding, uh, you know, how we will look, how we'll be presented. We're profiting off of it. But at the end of the day, like it is still a human being who is being used. And even if you're consenting to the use, I, I don't think that human beings can actually, uh, I, one of my friends told me one time, um, the heart knows when it's being cheated. Like you cannot actually convince yourself if you are using yourself as an object that is going to affect you. If you are selling yourself as an object for somebody else's gain, you're not going to be able to live as though you aren't. And that's not something people want to acknowledge, but it's true. If you treat yourself as an object, right, you are, you are not loving yourself. I met this guy who was helping to rescue girls who'd been human trafficked once. And uh, I think they'd been, he was helping girls who'd been human trafficked from Kansas City, actually. This was, was been about, um, about 12, 13 years ago I met him. And, um, and he described to me how these, these awful people um, pretend to be romantically interested yeah. in particularly naive young ladies and they they separate them from their parents and they they and then they sort of uh they it persuade them to engage in premarital sexual activity and they they and they 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 ramp up how degrading that activity is uh more and more and more and they make the girl feel guilty if she doesn't agree to participate in these activities and then and it's it but it gets worse and worse and eventually the, the, the girl becomes sort of sickened by herself and eventually it you know, goes beyond madness essentially in, in, yeah. in the stuff that they persuade her to do. And then she, they, they deliberately induce a sense of self-loathing and like, as you say, of a, a voluntary transformation of oneself into a recreational object yeah. for complete strangers. Yeah. And then the girl never wants to go back or see her family or anyone who she's ever had anything to do with or knew her in the past ever again. Yeah. Because she just hates the idea of seeing those people ever again. She doesn't want to know who she is and what she imagines she's become. And I mean, in a way, what you're describing, that's just a really intense version of the general social transformation yeah. that's taken place in the last 60, 70 years. No, I, I absolutely think so. I think because because women, especially now, are are taught and trained to be to treat themselves as an object to think of themselves um as objects there's so many different ways that i see this manifesting um for instance and you know uh, i'm not trying to be shocking or anything but um like the the way that breasts are treated in our culture they are used to sell everything right they're used to sell to sell every they're they're, they're on you know billboards, throughout their commercials, billboards commercials like for beer for um for pain medicine for refrigerators for for everything right but also breastfeeding is treated as something gross it's so bizarre because like women from from really really young ages are you know little girls they're they're taught to think of themselves as these kind of tools for marketing these kind of tools to sell but then the actual function of those body parts is considered gross and something that needs to be covered up because we've sectionalized breasts, which really have nothing to do with the procreative act, except in the feeding of offspring. But when you use them to feed offspring, it's treated as this gross thing. I was thinking about, um, so in, in 1956, um, it was kind of the standard in the United States that it was, it was the thought of medical professionals that breast milk was not as good for babies as formula. 
Um, and so that was what doctors were advising. They were advising that women um, give their babies only formula. And of course, when you give your babies formula and you don't you don't nurse them, this can also lead to, you know, your, your milk supply will dry out and you won't be able to feed them. Uh, you won't be able to breastfeed them. But there was a group of seven, I think it was seven Catholic women um, who got together and rejected this idea. They thought, well, no, my body... And I think because they were formed in this kind of Catholic way of thinking about the dignity of women, um, my body is a good thing. My body provided and sustained my child this whole time. This is what my body is for. I'm going to use it. Um, and other women started seeing them breastfeed and wanted to take classes with them. And they formed La Leche League, which is still um, an active organization that helps women overcome difficulties in breastfeeding. Um, but it was really considered... It, it was this kind of controversial, rebellious thing um, that women were, you know, kind of usurping, you know, the medical experts and saying, actually, my body is good for that. Like, this is what my body is for. Um, and again, I think I think it is because like women have been like culturally, we've been conditioned to think about women's bodies in such like objective terms. I would I would say there that. Uh the discussion seems to be surrounding the word use, you know, the, the feminine is being used for marketing, that it's being used for this recreational pleasure. But it seems like, and JP2 is going to say this in Mulieris Dignitatum, that, that really be, the relationship between man and woman, that uh, the woman isn't to be used, she's supposed to be served, that the man is, we've been placed here to serve uh, the woman who is, uh, Dr. Fazer will say, has nature has given this very onerous task of, of creating another being and then sustaining and supporting that being. And then even when the child is born for so many years, it's so utterly dependent upon its parents. And so Dr. Vaze will say, well, it just seems like nature has placed this unfair burden on the woman throughout that whole process, unless she has someone there to carry that burden, you know, to support and to serve. And that's, that's our role. That's a man's role. And uh, JP2 says here, he says, in Mulier's Dignitatum, quote, it is the woman who pays directly for this chaired generation, which literally absorbs the energies of her body and soul. It is therefore necessary that the man be fully aware that in their shared parenthood, he owes a special debt to the woman, end quote. And so us men in that relationship and the generation of children, we are placed as that is really the servant of procreation to be there to provide as the woman brings new life into the world. And I mean, doc, you must know that as a married man, I, I assume you could probably speak to that much better than I can, but uh, it, it shouldn't be use. You know, the, the man isn't using the woman he's, he's serving. He's been placed to serve. Well, the terrifying thought is if you think about it, basically the entire structure of human society is built around that relationship which you just described. The normal way in which a human being without the assistance of grace learns to grow up and be unselfish is because of the debt of honour that at least a man feels to provide for the mother of his children. That's the normal way in which people are transformed from snivelling adolescence <laughs> into relatively responsible adults and uh, one little pill has successfully destroyed uh, the motor of this construction of human society yeah. and as a result the societies which are dominated built around now that pill are, are ceasing to exist in the sense that they're just they're just sterilizing themselves out of, out of existence and yeah. 
first of all they start saying oh we've got to do this because of overpopulation it's not because because i'm a revolting selfish person and oh no it's not because of overpopulation it's because of global warming or whatever and then then oh no no now but now it's it's the the, the horrible truth that this is destroying the cultures in question is is, is so obvious that there's a sort of neo-marxist rage against these cultures to try and explain why euthanizing one's own civilization is actually an incredibly virtuous thing to do and there's nothing to do with kind of nihilistic hedonism and we and we see people paying for it already like right like uh i know um one of my coworkers um went to went back to, to france recently and she was delayed getting back um in part because of the protests that were happening in france because they raged the they they raised the age of retirement um and the main reason seems to be because there's not enough people being born to support the older the aging population um and so in a strange way this desire to you know if you know, where the desire comes from this this kind of want you know materialistic you know uh seeking after one's own kind of security and everything is actually backfiring because you're not you you won't be able to have that because there aren't going to be young people um to work to provide for you um i do think it's it's we can we can blame a lot of things on the pill and i'm happy to blame as much stuff on the pill as we possibly (laughs) want to because i i find it insulting i find the existence of the pill honestly deeply insulting as a woman um from the time you know from when i was like 12 or something doctors sending my mom out of the room and trying to get me to be on the pill and not believing me when i told them that i wasn't sexually active and wasn't planning on becoming sexually active but also the way that there's like this specific again it's like snake oil it's this miracle pill that's going to cure you of the disease of being a woman and i think that that kind of misconception i think with that without that kind of thought undergirding so much of the way women have been perceived in society, the pill wouldn't exist in the first place. Right. So I think that, um, like before, before kind of the sexual revolution and when sex became this, this sterile, uh, recreational activity, I do think that there is this mentality, um, where for women to get ahead, they kind of have to leave behind everything that actually makes them women for women to get ahead. They basically need to function like, they need to they need to get rid of their femininity. They they need to be like men, um, and and a lot of people have kind of thrown that around without being really clear. But I do mean specifically that women would no longer have the burden of motherhood, that women would be free, especially of that, because motherhood is what takes them out of the workplace. Motherhood is what makes them not competitive, right? Um, the the period of time that a woman has to take a, has to take away from advancing her career or her education in order to grow another human being in her body and then take care of that human being um, that none of that is very good for being successful in the workplace. And I think at the end of the day, really, no one wins in this kind of use abuse relationship. I I do truly believe that that men in their hearts that we have it kind of written in us by nature that we do have this role, that we're here to provide and protect uh, the women. And when we don't find an outlet for that, the proper outlet for that with our bride, if we're married or religiously speaking, we can speak about the bride, the church. But if we don't find that outlet for sacrifice for the feminine, for the woman, we're going to find something else to lay down our lives for. And I think that's why men struggle so greatly with, uh, with becoming workaholics or we, you know, we spend all of our time in these useless, frivolous, vain 
uh, you know, hobbies, uh, you know, why we're so obsessed with the most trivial, trivial things is because I think we're looking for an outlet uh, to lay down our lives, to serve something other than ourselves. And if we're not placing that, you know, with, with the woman, our sister JP2 will say, whether it's uh, the woman who's our sister or the woman who's our bride, but, you know, nature has, has built us in such a way that I think that desires ingrained in us. And the analogy that always comes to mind for me between the relationship with men and women is the dance, like a ballroom dance. So the man, he's wearing all black, you know, he almost blends in with the, the walls. You, you can barely see him, especially if it's dimly lit. So he's not, the spotlight is not on him in any way. And then his bride will have that, you know, maybe the red dress or the white dress. She's the star of the show. And he's really there just to protect and provide the dance. So normally maybe he's a little bit taller so we can see above her so they don't run into other people. And then maybe he's a fraction of a second ahead in the dance. So he's leading it. But that's just for the sake of her beauty. So when you're watching them dance, you're watching the woman. She's doing the exciting work. And, and I think that analogy uh, plays very well with the relationship between a husband and a, and a wife. He's there to support, but she's the one doing the exciting work, as Claire was talking about, bringing new life into the world. I love that you brought up beauty because I think that's, that's such, that itself is so controversial because women are called to beauty, but we're not called to this kind of stupid, shallow, plastic kind of idiotic beauty that the world peddles as the real deal, right? But the, like the beauty of women is in them being fully what they are, right? When a, th- a thing is beautiful, when it is fully itself. Um, and that's why, I mean, I, another one of my soapboxes is the way that modesty has been talked about um, in Christian circles for the last like 20 years, where modesty is often communicated as a virtue that is just for women. Um, and it's it's how the woman needs to, all these kind of arbitrary, um, you know, uh, our arbitrary measurements um, that the woman needs to follow in order to make it as hard as possible for people to treat her like a sexual object, for people to look at her as a sexual object. And I think that's completely backwards. Not that there isn't, of course, great value in modesty um, and not that we don't, you know, clearly have an effect on each other. We can't live as though our actions don't affect other people. But because the motivation, the meaning behind it all is wrong. You don't cover the body out of shame. You cover the body out of reverence. It's because the body is good, not because the body is something gross and evil and not because the body itself is like the sinful thing, but because the body itself is good. And so it needs to be treated with reverence. Yeah, it's a kind of like a sacredness there. And I think the loss of sacredness in religion, the loss of theism, also leads to this loss of the dignity of the feminine. And I, I think, Claire, as you're talking about beauty here, that, that beauty, that the, wo- the woman, she really does embody, signify beauty. And beauty is a mysterious thing. It's a mysterious transcendental. You know, we almost can't put our finger on it. Why is this scene beautiful? You know, why is this poem beautiful? And so the woman, she does have a kind of mystery to herself. And if the culture adores the mystery of God, sees the value in that greatest mystery, I think it's easier to see the mystery that is woman. And JP2 is actually going to say that. Uh, and I don't know if I have the, the quote here, but he, he, he talks about the, the mystery of woman. That woman is a mystery. And so as mystery in general is valued in the culture through a reverence for God and a religion, I, I think also uh, the mystery found in the feminine. And so the loss of one leads to the loss of the other. 
And just for, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with, um, with that kind of terminology, mystery, not as in like something like that you don't understand, but I mean, there is that to mystery, but mystery is in, as in something that has such tremendous depth that there's always more to understand about it. Right. Like women are mysterious because, because of the depth to their very nature, which is why, oh, sorry, doc. Oh, no, no, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to, I was going to go off again. You should talk first. <laughs> no, the soapbox. We love the soapboxes though. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you think this is too boring an explanation, but it strikes me that the modesty obsession is partly because, well, it's partly because of um, the sexualization of uh, culture in general and the uh, omnipresence of pornography, yeah. uh, especially since the development of the internet. And um, uh, also the, 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 the disappearance of grace from our culture there are fewer and fewer people baptized there are fewer and fewer people who even people who are receiving the eucharist who who believe in the teachings of the church or go to mass every sunday so there are fewer and fewer people who are receiving grace from receiving the eucharist and so i think there's a tendency to try and so people feel their moral failure uh, their their men feel that failure of their concupiscence, and they attempt to this this they attempt to shift the blame. You know, it was the woman who you put with me. She tempted yeah. me, and I ate. Um, uh, so um, so there's this attempt to transfer the guilt of concupiscence from the subject to the object, basically. So it's your fault that I felt lustful thoughts about you, yeah. and um, and 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 there's this attempt to. Um, to objectivize, in a different sense, objectivize culturally relative standards of uh, expectation in clothing. So, I mean, uh, as if they were objective and universal, which mm -hmm. they obviously aren't. Yeah, um, sure. uh, so, so, I mean, obviously, if you live on a Polynesian island, the amount of clothing you're going to wear is going to be pretty low, whereas if you live in Iceland or whatever, it's going to be pretty high. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this is entirely culturally relative. So, so the weird obsession with coming up with codes that everyone should obey uniformly is a way, it strikes me, of men, in a way, sometimes often men who are striving to some extent to, to achieve temperance, but are failing because of the massive pressures on them in, in the contemporary situation, uh, trying to assuage their guilt for their failure by transferring the guilt from themselves to, to the, the people who they're lusting after. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think that's, that's very well put. And I think that that is, I, I do think that that's definitely true. I also think it's kind of interesting the, um, as I'm reminded of something C.S. Lewis said, where he talked about, um, if you were to imagine a society that was obsessed with food, um, they have billboards of food everywhere. Um, everything is, you know, the, the, every, every advertisement is an advertisement for food. And there are people who are willing to spend all this money to go sit in a dark room and watch somebody slowly lift a silver tray over, you know, a piece of mutton. Um, and that's the whole show. You would think there was something deeply wrong with this society. They had a really bad relationship with food. You would be perhaps even more surprised if you found out that food was not scarce there, but in fact, food was readily available. Um, you would think that was a very strange society indeed. I think people today are so 
because the, the commonest accusation that I think Catholics get regarding sex is that we're repressive, right? We want to repress people. Holiness is repression. Um, but like it's coming from a society that is so incredibly excessive, right? That they're bored out of their mind by sex. They have to keep coming up with newer, crazier, more disturbing, disgusting things just to try and get back any of the shock value. Um, I think that to be accused is being repressive by people who are so kind of like wild about it. Um, I think that's generally a good sign. You do want to be, obviously repression is not holiness. God desires us to be whole, right? And even in the celibate life, sexuality is fully integrated into the human person. That's the definition of chastity in the catechism, the full integration of sexuality within the human person. Um, but I think the fact that Catholics are often called repressed by such an excessive society is generally a good sign. I think what does C.S. Lewis say in there that <clears throat> two people struggle with hunger to those who are starving, but then also gluttons. Yeah. That it really is. It's, it's not about the food, right? So it's not about, it's not about women. It's about the individual character, like the temperance in the man. And I think, you know, this repression uh, objection, I think it comes from a, uh, a lack of knowledge of original sin, that there is a fallenness in the world. And just because I have certain desires do not mean those are good desires yeah. or so that I entertain those desires. There are desires that I have, which should be repressed. You know, like I, you know, my family, both my father and I, we love Oreos. We love peanut butter. We love pancakes. Um, you know, and if, if I had my desires, I would be eating those three times a day, but there are desires that I have that I know just ought not to be indulged because of the brokenness in man and brokenness in me. But isn't it weird that we can see that clearly with things like food, but we have such a hard time accepting that with anything to do with sex. I mean, I think culturally. it's that, that massive failure, like as doc, as you were talking about just this, the great prevalence of failure, it makes it harder for one to very honestly say that, no, this is wrong. You know, and I, I just continue to fail in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Leo the 13th is amazing. I think it's in his encyclical on Freemasonry, actually, uh, Humanum Genus. He says, um, he's talking about naturalism, about the idea of excluding divine revelation uh, from the sphere of the rational, which he says is itself completely irrational. And uh, and he says that, that if societies that do this, that initially they'll say we can achieve morally virtuous people without the assistance of grace and revelation. These were obviously writing in the 19th century. And they will roughly invoke broadly similar moral standards, at least in regard to the second table of the law, um, commandments, uh, four to ten um uh, to the to the christian society that they're attempting to secularize um but then slowly they'll discover that they can't actually achieve those standards anymore because they've deprived themselves of revelation and grace and and they'll get angry because they won't want to admit that rationalism and naturalism have led to this failure so they will start to water down the uh, requirements of, the, of their secularized moral framework and mm -hmm. then they'll find that they can't even fulfill these uh, watered down requirements um, in fact they'll find it even harder to fulfill than they did when they roughly corresponded to nature and reason in the first place and then so they'll water them down further and eventually it'll just become completely insane society will start to fall apart and they'll have to start making vice yeah. the moral ideal instead of virtue yeah i remember once i was when uh, veritatis splendor which i think is 
John Paul II's greatest encyclical. I think it's absolutely amazing text. I, I locked myself in a room and read it from cover to cover once when in my late teens, and you know, I was virtually in tears when I got to the end of it because it was so beautiful. And um, but I mean, I don't know if you've read it, uh, but but uh, hilariously, the main sort of highbrow liberal newspaper in Britain described it in an editorial as John Paul II's recent encyclical on contraception. Which is absolutely wow. hilarious. Yeah, it's like, like contraception is mentioned once in the course of a list in in <laughs> over the course of this massive magnum opus, and um, but but for people who are completely trapped in this weird obsession, this this amazing work could be described as JP2's recent work on it, contraception. It, it is fantastic proof that the Catholic Church is that revealed religion, that it is the true religion, that it is held to uh, that, that contraception is is wrong, right? That uh, sex is made for procreation, that the church has stood against it, really in face of the whole world. Yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, Dr. Fazer, uh, he talks about his conversion, a very famous Catholic philosopher, and he he says when he was looking around those various churches, he actually, he saw that the Catholic church stuck to natural law. And so it ruled out a lot of those other various religions, which did not do that. So for him, it was evidence that this was the true faith. And, and I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, and then speaking about this, the, the whole question about um, women and the dignity of women, um, I think it's interesting to note the, the real um, elephant in the room when it comes to the attack of the dignity of womanhood which is the way that womanhood itself has been um, reduced to, uh, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, one of the catchphrases of the day, right? Um, that nobody can answer the question what a woman is. <laughs> that the, the dignity of womanhood has been reduced so intensely that now you're called a bigot if you want to give an essentialist definition of womanhood. Um, where womanhood, you know, the, the same society that wants to call themselves feminist and, and celebrate women's heritage month and, and all this stuff. They're, they're putting people who've never had a period on period products. They're using people who will never menstruate. They're, they're the face of, you know, menstrual products. Um, somebody who, who has only gotten, um, who's, who's only even called themselves a woman for like a year or two is winning the woman of the year. Um, it's, it's one of those things. And, and, and the, uh, the irony of it all to me is now, I've, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the slur turf. No, I've actually never heard that. No. Doc, have you heard that, that slur before? Oh, it's trans something. Trans exclusionary. Yeah. Trans exclusionary radical feminist, um, which is a slur for women who, um, think that women are different than men, um, essentially. Um, and I just I find it so funny that there's this slur that now comes from from people who hail themselves as feminists, but the the insult like the part of the slur is that you're calling people feminists <laughs> by identifying womanhood as something distinct. I, I like Father Mike Schmitz has this phenomenal talk where he says he asks he says, "Men, tell me what does it feel like to be a man, 
or women, tell me, what does it feel like to be a woman? And he goes, it doesn't feel like anything. It's not right. a feeling, you yeah. know, and the, the things when we, when we talk about like, so what is a man? Oh, well, he likes blue, you know, and he plays sports. He, like, those are all just <laughs> stereotypes. Right. You, you know, when we, when someone is expecting a boy and the room's going to be blue and the clothes are going to be blue. I mean, that's, we're not actually saying that essentially masculinity yeah. is tied to this color. But it's so strange. One of the things that I think is just so bizarre that our culture has done is it has said for the last 20 years that um, gender norms are arbitrary and they're social constructs. And, you know, like things like blue and trucks and makeup and dresses, like these are all created by society. None of these things exist naturally. Pink is not naturally a feminine thing. Um, but the same society that says all of these things are social constructs also says if you like one set of these more than the other, you need to change yourself to conform to that. It's bizarre. It's like you're telling us that, that you made up all these rules, but also that if we don't adhere to them, like we're we're the ones who are broken and have to change. It makes me really, really angry, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, as we, you know, continue to talk about this dignity that the JP2 he cuts really through the noise and he says, you know, so what the dignity of women, where is that to be found in? And he says, for the, for women, for men, our dignity comes from being made in the image of God, that we, that we bear his image, the irrational animals, that when someone looks at a woman, they are getting a glimpse into the triune God in some way. And so that awe, that reverence, that sacredness, Claire, as you're speaking about that, uh, inviolable, you know, cannot be taken away, has nothing to do with what color she likes. That dignity uh, is given to her from the moment of her conception. And uh, in a sense, we can actually, if we want to grow in dignity, what we need to do is we need to grow in that image of God. And, and I'll go back to really as, as we lose God in, in society, we lose him being present in front of us, then we're going to lose the dignity of those things which bear his resemblance. And that's going to be women, but that's also going to be men. Yeah, because in, in different ways, right? Man and woman both reveal something of God. Like if you were to get rid of women, you would lose some manifestation of the image of God. And likewise with men. I mean, one of the fundamental lies of modernity is the claim that you can't derive an ought from an is. That that it doesn't, you can't tell what it is to be a good something by knowing what it is to be that something, right? This is this is the basis of of the failed modern ethical systems of, of one sort or another is is this claim. Um, it's obviously false. Everyone knows it's false. You know that a squishy brown apple with a, a grey furry fungus on the side and a little worm wriggling through it is a bad apple. And that a spherical, crisp red sweet apple is a good apple. You just know that from knowing what an apple is. And, and I think it began with we denied what it means to be a good instance of a male or a female. We denied the social fulfillment of the roles of men and women. Uh, and then ultimately we found that as a result, we had to deny the very existence of the distinction. And paradoxically, because um, uh, nature punishes those who constantly rail against it, as you said, we've ended up in a situation where an absurd caricature of masculinity and femininity has now become the means by which we diagnose whether you are in fact in some paradoxical and incomprehensible way spiritually really a woman when you're a man or really a man when you're a woman mm -hmm. because you like because you like trucks or or, or baby dolls mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be 
and and it becomes there's there's um a number of modern feminist writers who will talk about gender as just a performance a performance that we play um but it does the the term man and woman is is necessarily about an embodied reality um and i think this is what john paul ii is, is talking about when he when he writes about the dignity of women as sharing fully in the dignity of humankind but in a different way than men and a difference that is that is meant to manifest something more of the creativity of God, the creator. Um, and so I think women should be angry at the, at the, um, the way that womanhood has been used, has, has been watered down to either be a performance, um, to be something that is, that is achievable through plastic surgery, um, to reduce womanhood, which is a, a, a lived manifestation of God himself in a unique way, um, women should be very angry that womanhood itself is being, is being treated as a costume that somebody can put on. Um, women should be very angry because it is just the most recent kind of means of objectifying women of taking women and stripping us of our actual femininity of all those things that make us feminine. Because in every stage of life, whether a woman is able to have children or not able to have children, whether a woman is celibate or married, whether she's young or old, women are marked by the unique capacity to bear life. Not that all women do, not that all women can, not that all women even should um, for a variety of reasons, but that all women by our, by our femininity, right? We, we, are, we are marked in this way and that that is a good and beautiful and dignified thing that is every bit as worthy of respect as men. Um, and I think when we lose that, we lose that in part because we've forgotten who we are. Because we have forgotten, um, because we, we think that we are ugly, we, we, like, like Eve, right? Finding that she's naked. Like we, we think that our bodies are disgusting. We think that our bodies need to be, um, that our bodies are this kind of like sinful, disgusting thing. That the things that make us feminine are to be hidden, are to be repressed, are to be medicated away. Um, and... And it's, it's a culture that promotes this kind of self-hatred. And that is not what God desires for us because God loves us with infinite love um, and has made us, made us in his own image, an image that is worthy of love. Amen. Well, I feel like we could talk all night on the topic, uh, and I would I would pleasantly listen to a, you know a, a numberless amount of Claire's soapboxes on the topic as I have uh, thus far. Uh, but luckily, in the contest between the world in the biblical sense and women, we know who wins, as Scripture says. "Quote: I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head; you shall bruise his heel." End quote. So through Christ. The woman Mary, the mother of God, the bride of Christ, the church, and thereby all men and women in Christ, quote, overcome the world, end quote. That's John sixteen thirty three. Again, this is Think Catholic. My name is Austin Havish, along with Claire Nowak and Dr. Alan Fimister. And thanks again for joining us. <laughs>